Lily Flag Signal, Episode 22, Shelta, the Party Cave. Quote, we determined to see the wonders, which we mutually resolved never to see again. We have gazed upon the beauties of the sculptor's and the painter's art. We have seen all that was attractive in mechanics and agriculture gathered together in one vast exposition and thought what wondrous power the great creator had given man, but in that power nothing can rival the beauties of this grand and weirdly beautiful work of nature. End quote. I had an entire intro written up for this episode, but nothing I came up with even compared to the drama of Victorian journalism, so I'm just gonna leave it with that man's description of Shelter Cave. Today's episode topic, from the late 1880s when it was marketed as one of Huntsville's preeminent tourist attractions. That opening quote is what a newspaper from the state capitol had to say about his visit in 1889 to Shelter Cavern, on the north side of Huntsville up what's now Pulaski Pike. He was one of thousands to visit the cave that year, during its tenure as Huntsville's widely advertised tourist trap. I mean, natural wonder. You'll, you'll hear in a sec. There are far too many caves and caving stories to fit into a single podcast episode for Huntsville, particularly a 20-ish minute long one like I do. So today I wanted to continue my originally unintentional theme of discussing weird historical parties by focusing on Shelter Cavern in the late 1800s. So join me in this journey to not quite the center of the earth today, for stories of Victorian tourists doing weird Victorian tourist things, wonders that were apparently indescribable to journalists of the time, and crawfish, or cray crayfish, those little shrimp-looking things. Whatever, they're important to the story. Flag Signal, a Huntsville, Alabama history podcast where I only recently learned to spell spelunking. I want to give a big thanks to Sabrina Simone, Natalie Silva, and David Hughes for their insight on this episode, as having multiple cave experts was a must for researching today's show. And while there are lots of caves worthy of discussion on the show here, I decided to choose just one for this episode, Shelter Cave. This is in part because of its fun past as a tourist destination, but also because of its proximity to downtown. Shelta is within Huntsville city limits on Pulaski Pike, and while it isn't open to the public on a daily basis due to ongoing preservation and research efforts, I hope it makes talking about Shelta that much cooler just knowing how close it is. Also, you can definitely visit the National Speleological Society. They're a group focused on cave study, preservation, and education with members all over, but headquarters is here in Huntsville, which is pretty cool. You can visit them down the road from Shelta and get involved with caving throughout North Alabama. And they do have a way to request cave access, but you can't just like wander into Shelta like you could in 1888. This is for the best, but we'll get to that. For all you cave nerds out there, and through feedback I've received from you all, that is very much a category of people who listen to this show, here are some stats on Shelta. It's a limestone cave with a span of over 2,500 feet and has three large rooms and multiple seasonal lakes. That means that their depth can vary based on the time of year. In terms of cave ownership, a man from Michigan named Henry Fuller bought the land on which the cave sits for $5,000 in February of 1888. It was Henry who named the cave Shelta after his daughter. The description of the cave at this point included that, quote, the side walls and overhead are covered with the most beautiful crystals, which glistened in the lantern light, and in many places, tall pyramids of stalagmites and stalactites were found equal to any ever before seen, end quote. Fun fact, if you have trouble remembering which is which, stalagmites start on the ground and might reach the ceiling someday, and stalactites hold on tight to the ceiling they hang from. You're welcome. At this point in local history, attracting new people to the area was all the rage. See the Montesano Hotel episode, as that venue was operating around the same time. 
and Fuller was ready to hop on that bandwagon. His modifications to the cave included stairs, a dancing platform, and electric lights. You have to remember, too, that this was all prior to many of the protections for caves and other natural landmarks that we know and love today. For example, Yellowstone, the first national park, had only just been declared in 1872, and the National Park Service wasn't established until 1916, well after the events in this story, and that's just at the federal level. This doesn't even touch the wild things people were doing at local and state levels and how long those protections took there. There just weren't the same rules and advocacy groups that we have now. These Victorians just went for it. Now, if you're new here, you should know that old newspaper advertisements are one of my favorite pieces of historical information because there's nothing like seeing marketing efforts from over a century ago, and the ads for Shelta as a tourist destination are no different. Even if some writers may exaggerate, we're still getting to see the impression they wanted to leave and what it was they thought would attract visitors. Quote, Mr. Fuller has spared no expense in making the cave a most attractive place to visit, and it is only a question of time until he reaps a golden reward for developing this, the greatest of the world's wonders. End quote. Fuller made some immediate cave improvements, and that's in heavy quotation marks, in the first few months of his possession. For example, in June of 1888, he began installing those aforementioned electric arc lights. These were the precursors to incandescent lights, and they were incredibly bright, like at least 2,000 times more powerful than a candle. Electricity would flow through a piece of carbon, so like coal, on one end, then arc across a gap to another piece of carbon, hence the name. This would burn down the coal pieces, and with the light having to be on constantly when people were touring the cave, this meant they needed replaced frequently. The old pieces of coal were just tossed onto the ground when these swaps happened, because a caving friend of mine, hey Sabrina, mentioned that when she had gone into shelter recently, she actually found the little discarded pieces of coal all over the ground. So yeah, it's over 130 years later, and the remains of Fuller's improvements remain. He also built a large dance floor in the main room of the cave and had bands, including an orchestra, play there to provide music to which the patrons danced. As one listener put it, quote, the notes of the band echoed and re-echoed from every recess of the cavern, end quote. I cannot imagine having to carry, like, a cello down those stairs, which that same source described as, quote, almost perpendicular, end quote, into the cave. Yet another reason I play clarinet. This whole venue took off quickly. Remember, it was February in 1888 that Fuller bought the cave and began making it a hangout site. By July of that same year, the Shelta Cavern Company, which Henry Fuller had started to manage the cave tourism business with a few associates, was petitioning the city of Huntsville for a, quote, street railway from the corner of Holmes through Church Street to the Corporation Line, end quote. The committee set up by the city alderman, that's like the city council by another name, actually granted them right-of-way under the same rules the Montesano Hotel's train operated under. And yes, there was in fact a train line being built that went from downtown Huntsville up the mountain at this time. They really were trying to make tourist destinations just outside of town connected by rail a thing. Survey work for the Shelta Dummy Line, that's a set of tracks that just serves to get people essentially back and forth from a particular place as opposed to being part of a network of trains, that construction began January of 1889. This set of tracks never came to full fruition from what I've seen, as when a large press tour took place later that year, and I'll talk more about that in a moment, the guests were brought to Shelta in carriages and not by rail. The next Sanborn fire insurance map available after this railroad right-of-way was approved is from 1894. That one shows the Montesano Railroad's tracks through downtown, but doesn't show anything for the caves. When I started researching this episode, I assumed advertising a cave would present an interesting challenge since, with apologies to the cavers who listen to this show, going underground isn't usually the first thing that comes to mind when one is planning a vacation. 
A writer from the Greenville Advocate actually pointed out after a tour of the cave that what was really needed to make it a true tourist destination was, quote, a lot of traditions and pretty fakes about objects in the caverns, end quote. And they later said, quote, put on your dream caps, your thinking hoods, ye editors of our state, and send a lot of pretty romances and traditions to Major Fuller. The guide is warranted to apply them at the right spot and with an as true as gospel air, end quote. <sighs> Don't just make things up. It makes my job harder. Mammoth Cave in Kentucky was already established at this point in time as a tourist destination, however, and I found multiple comparisons saying Shelta rivaled Mammoth Cave in size, splendor, and the like. A few months after Fuller's purchase of the cave, Huntsville's Mercury newspaper even ran an ad referring to the, quote, Mammoth Cave on Mr. Fuller's place, end quote, with Mammoth not capitalized there, but with the implication quite clear. It reminded me of how local sports teams or venues will have, like, cartoon mouse night where they can't outright say Disney, but, like, we all know it's Mickey Mouse. Something they did have at Shelta, though, were creative names for the various cave structures and formations, like Devil's Bathtub, Titiana Grotto, Giant Ribs, Mary's Lamb, and Santa Claus. Before the year, 1888, was over, the Fullers sold Shelter Cavern, quote, and all others to be discovered, end quote, to the Shelter Caverns Land and Investment Company, which the papers described at the time as being, quote, composed of Iowa and Minnesota capitalists, end quote. Two individual men from Iowa bought land around the cave from the Fullers that day as well, and the three sales added up to just over $370,000 for the Fullers. One paper called them a, quote, Iowa syndicate, end quote, and I just love that phrasing. Admittedly, local historian Pat Jones speculated later that not all of that $300,000 plus in sales may have actually made it into Fuller's pocket, as, quote, payment of the remainder may have depended upon the success of the promotion. Fuller hadn't finished. End quote. You see, with this new ownership structure, which was lauded in Montgomery as, quote, the inauguration of the, the most important enterprises ever undertaken in this country, end quote, came a lot of promises, not all of which were fulfilled. In February of 1889, a month after the sale, it was announced that, quote, a new summer hotel will soon be erected at the now famous Shelta Caverns, end quote. That didn't happen. However, the promotional efforts for getting visitors to the cave really ramped up. In June of 1889, some members of the press got a special tour of Huntsville that went quite literally from some of the city's highest highs to its lowest lows. Members of the Alabama Press Association came to town for a few days, along with their families, for their multi-day annual meeting mixed with sightseeing tour. After a Friday night of partying and dancing, followed by breakfast the next morning at the shiny new Montesano Hotel, and this is your subliminal message to go listen to my episode on that later, they had their next meal underground in Shelta. Inviting members of the press for this venture was the Victorian-era equivalent of having influencers at your event or venue, as this was the easiest way to spread the word on what you as a tourist attraction had to offer in terms of arts, culture, and experience, and the write-ups from various attendees are incredible descriptions of what was going on there. From The Progressive Age, a newspaper at the time in Scottsboro, quote, After breakfast, the press gang returned to the city and went to Shelter Caverns, the subterranean wonder. This cave is about two miles from Huntsville. It is illuminated by electric lights and is laid off in beautiful walks. It is useless to attempt to describe it. We can't do it. End quote. In Troy, Alabama, the paper said, quote, A description of this wonderful place would require more space than we can devote to it, and we desist. Yet it can be given in four words, grandly and weirdly beautiful. End quote. 
Well, that isn't particularly helpful for my purposes, but thankfully other reporters put a little more effort into their descriptions. The Gunnersville Democrat newspaper had a representative there who described the tour, including the long and winding steps into the cave, eating barbecue on a raised platform in the main room as a band played, spending over an hour exploring the main cavern, seeing the, quote, dazzle of the electric lights, end quote, piled by a dynamo, that's a generator, and the grotto with the underground lake and rowboat. One of the other reporters who went on this journey into Shelta described it as a religious experience, as he began his article for the Montgomery Advertiser with, quote, Let the atheist stand aside or let him descend into the awe-inspiring shades of Shelta caverns, end quote. This particular author also added that, quote, I don't think any pen, save that of a Dante, could do justice to the emotions of a man, under the circumstances, especially, if, like under the writer, it took all the physical courage of which he was master to overcome his trepidation at the thoughts of going so far into the earth. End quote. Well, the writer of this article was most certainly not Dante Alighieri, but at least he tried. I also appreciated that he addressed the fears related to going into the cave, as I can see how some newcomers would have some trepidations about a venue and attraction that required them to go seemingly far underground and rely entirely on little lanterns and electric lights even during the daytime. Quote, From our earliest childhood, we have had a morbid dread of going into these deep recesses under the earth's surface, hollowed out, as it were, by the hand of God himself. And when we found no excuse for refusing to go with a party of the Editorial Association to view the wonders of the marvelous Shelter Caverns, it took a courage greater than we thought we possessed to face the ordeal. With a resignation to the fate, such as the soldier feels when he hears the order fall in and knows that just beyond the hill is a long line of muskets and deep-mouthed cannons, only awaiting the appearance of a foe to deal death and destruction, we entered the opening that leads down into the earth, hundreds of feet from heaven's free sunlight. Down, down, the long flight of almost perpendicular stairs we go. Huge rocks overhanging the passage that seemingly are ready to topple over at a touch and crush you like an insignificant worm, while far off in the depths of what appears to be a yawning abyss, the Chinese lanterns and electric lights shine like stars in the darkness. End quote. He later adds, quote, As you stand and gaze around, you feel an irresistible impulse to flee you know not where, and suddenly you are overwhelmed with the thought of your own helplessness should you be left alone and the lights become extinguished. End quote. Despite swearing that he'd never again go into a cave, the author finished this article by saying that everyone should, if provided the opportunity, visit Shelta and experience its beauty and wonders at least once. And people did indeed visit. Just a few months into Fuller's ownership of Shelta, they were already getting about 150 visitors a day, and that was before the big promo work began. Tickets then were a dollar, with season tickets costing $10. Guests of Professor William Council, the first principal of what's now Alabama A&M University, had guests from Missouri who visited Shelter Cave along with a group of students. Charles Henley wrote in the Huntsville Gazette that he and a friend were given a tour by Henry Fuller personally, including a half-mile boat ride through the cave. This was particularly important to me to read because it shows that both black and white guests were welcome to visit the cave, something that wouldn't have been the case at all places in the South in the late 1800s. Things weren't all fun and dandy and tourist-trappy forever, though. In 1890, a man named Willie Walls slipped and hit his head while visiting shelter with friends. He grabbed onto a railing to stabilize himself, but, quote, the railing having rotted broke with him, throwing him quite a little distance below, end quote. He hit his head on a rock quite badly, but recovered quickly. Unfortunately, this got misreported in other papers around the state as being a, quote, terrible fall, end quote, and a fatal accident in shelter caverns. The cave and surrounding land were sold again in spring of 1891 slightly more than three years after Fuller bought it initially, to a Commodore Sanford Colson of South Dakota. 
As the papers put it at the time, quote, he will organize a syndicate and build factories and a summer hotel on the land, an electric car line from the city. It is a big deal, end quote. Guess what never happened? Unlike with the Montesano Hotel, another Huntsville attraction that closed operations around this time and thus definitively ended its tenure as a tourist attraction, the Shelter Cavern tourism dwindled slowly before coming to an end. You'll see occasional references to various groups and social clubs taking trips to the cavern, and in spring 1896, the county tax collector put out a notice that 32 acres of land owned by the Shelter Caverns Company was being sold due to back taxes. So that's not a great sign. People continued visiting Shelta some after that, but the time between the cave's tourist destination heyday and its current tenures of preserved area isn't as glamorous or humorous as picturing tourists in their fine clothes descending into a cave to dance to live music and go on subterranean boat rides, and tracking the ownership as the land changed hands gets a bit tedious to read aloud from a script, so I'm going to breeze over it a bit today for brevity's sake. By the 1920s, Shelta as a tourism site had mostly faded from public memory, with the Gunnersville newspaper that had lauded the cave almost 40 years prior saying, quote, Huntsville at one time had a Shelta cavern that was developed to lure the romantic. We hear no more of Shelta cavern, end quote. There was talk that Shelta was used as a speakeasy during Prohibition, which lasted from 1920 to 1933, and I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case. What better way to hide your drinks, and to hide yourself while you drank, than in a large cave? Obviously, this wasn't the sort of well-documented thing, for the same reason Molly Teal wasn't writing brothel owner on her census form, but I like to think this is true. The 1930s also saw a lot of social club and scout troop visits to the cave, including one which over a dozen Boy Scouts spent part of their meeting time exploring Shelta before they, quote, returned to the hall and practiced tumbling more than two hours, end quote. Nothing like some caving to warm you up for gymnastics, I guess? Scientists, including biologists and geologists, were also actively studying the cave at this point as well, in a pattern that continues to this day. In fact, it was this desire to study the cave that led to its modern-day preservation. I mentioned the Speleological Society at the start of the episode and how their headquarters are near Shelta, and that's not a coincidence. Like, the largest caving-focused organization in the whole world, with upwards of like 8,000 members, is based here in Huntsville because of Shelta Cave and all this preservation and research. The research of scientists like John Cooper in the 1960s led to Shelter being put on the map for biologists and thus preservation, but that's another episode altogether. Though the partying atmosphere is gone from Shelter now, that doesn't make the cave any less exciting or significant. It's incredibly biodiverse, with some fauna living there that have never been seen anywhere else in the world. It's a big deal, and also why you have to get permission to go inside. One of the most important of these cave-dwelling fauna seems to me to be the Shelta Cave Crayfish, as it was thought to be extinct for at least 30 years prior to being located in Shelta, hence it now being named for the cave. If you've not seen a crayfish, they're like a tiny shrimp, which sounds redundant until you see them. The Shelta ones aren't the kind you'd get at a crawfish boil at the football tailgate, mind you, and i definitely recommend looking up a photo of them. They're kind of cute. If caves are your jam, or something you just want to learn more about, you can check out the Huntsville Grotto. They're a local caving club based out of the aforementioned National Speleological Society headquarters just down the road from Shelta. I like to finish these episodes with seemingly overdramatic quotes when I can, and with that said, I'd like to read this one from the Scottsboro journalist who toured Shelta in 1889, since his thoughts on the city after that visit tell a lot about the impression Fuller and the other investors were trying to give about Huntsville by way of fancy hotels and natural wonders. Quote, Suffice it to say that Huntsville, which is famous for its handsome residences, lovely flower gardens, beautiful women and chivalrous men, culture and refinement, excelled all previous efforts in dispensing her well-known hospitality. She is the brightest gem in Alabama's diadem, 
the queenliest city in the state, and her future is as bright as the morning star. End quote. What a takeaway from a fancy barbecue dinner eaten underground, eh? That's it for today. It's come to my attention that not everyone is aware I finish these shows out with bloopers from the episode, so if you want a quick giggle at me mispronouncing words, stick around through the credits. First though, I have some thank you messages. The cavers who were kind enough to help out with the research for today's episode, Sabrina, Natalie, and David, are all lovely humans and I couldn't have made today's show without them. Also, a huge, huge thanks to the Patreon patrons, including Allison, Emily, Eric, Laura, Jennifer, and William. If you're listening to this and aren't a patron, check out patreon.com slash lilyflagpodcast to learn how you can support this podcast in exchange for stickers, bonus behind-the-scenes content, fun postcards and other mail, episode shoutouts, and more. Again, that's patreon.com slash L-I-L-Y-F-L-A-G-G podcast, with two G's and flag. This is a hobby project for me, and the someday I'll do an episode on that list is like 30 items long, so knowing there are people out there willing to monetarily support my obsession with local history has been really sweet. If you're into the social media thing and seeing visuals to go with each week's episode, you can find the show on Facebook and Instagram at Lily Flag Podcast. It's L-I-L-Y-F-L-A-G-G Podcast. Two G's in flag. Lastly, and not to sound like an influencer in a bad way, but if you feel like subscribing to the show on your listening platform of choice and leaving a review, that would be super appreciated. Again, this is a hobby project, so your support means a lot. That's all for today. Until next time, don't trespass below ground, cite your sources, and I'll talk to you soon. Is it crawfish or crayfish? I was raised by Yankees. We didn't eat these things. The side walls and overhead are completed with the complete. For example, in June, he began installing electric arc lights. Art, 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 art lights. I think some people call them crawdads. Electricity would flow through a piece of carbon. Carbon. Available after this railroad right of way was approved from 1894. The I made it through railroad right of way. Cray, craw. Okay, I, I need to pick one. Before the year was over, the fullest, 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 the fullers sold shelter cavern. But the time between the cave's tourist destination heyday and its current tenure, Charlie, you're standing on the, Charlie. Okay, Merriam-Webster says crayfish, that's what we're keeping.